Greetings and welcome to the fourth episode of Poetry Cast. I'm your host, Jonathan Stone. First, I should apologize for falling behind in my monthly podcasting. See, I'm a student at Portland State University and I thought that I could keep up the rate of one cast per month, even while in school. But as it turns out, I suppose I can't. I'll still continue podcasting, but the shows may be erratic in their broadcast frequency. But I'd like to thank my listeners for continuing to subscribe despite the delays between episodes. And thank you for your emails. They mean a lot to me, and they help motivate me to make another show. Particularly, I'd like to thank James and Malcolm for your kind emails. So now that I've rambled on enough, let's get on with today's show. Today you're going to hear some more poetry by Pablo Neruda, as translated by myself. But first I'd like to share a movie that I watched recently, a documentary recorded in Neruda's own Isla Negra, Chile. The title is Yo Soy Pablo Neruda, and it was filmed in 1967. It's a short film, about 28 minutes, but I think it's valuable for its insight into Neruda's daily life in Isla Negra, and therefore is a helpful tool for better understanding his later poetic references. Yosoi Pablo Neruda begins by following Neruda through an open-air flea market, looking at various objects for sale. He muses on those wares that he picks up and holds, carefully feeling their weight in his hands, as he also does with the words he chooses in his poems. Words for Neruda in many ways seem to resemble tangible objects, and not only in a mimetic or representative manner, but in a manner that affects people directly, as physical objects do. We hear words, see words, and their utterance affects us, acts on us, and we act on them. Words are even bought and sold in books and in songs. The importance of this material treatment of words for Neruda may be linked to his communist beliefs where Lenin and Marx, for example, define the world in a primarily material way. Even language is material. This view would also add credibility to the way in which words are sometimes treated as a commodity, as I mentioned earlier in books and songs. Or maybe, just maybe, Neruda saw all human creations as essentially poetic in their origins. This is actually an old idea, perhaps best attributed, at least from my understanding, to the 18th century philosopher Giambattista Vico who basically posited the notion that human beings are the creators of their society. We created laws, culture, religions, science, values, morals, etc. This idea may not seem so revolutionary today, but in the 18th century it was quite advanced and controversial. Prior to this view, people believed they were the products of a divinely inspired culture where morals were handed to people by the gods, and laws were written in accordance to religious beliefs. You could maybe even say that our lives were believed to be predetermined or by providence or fate. However, because such beliefs were so ubiquitous, Vico's ideas were taken with a grain of salt and thrown over the shoulder as esoteric theories of an eccentric philosopher. Nevertheless, you can easily see how this notion, when applied to our world, makes quite a bit of sense. And after following a long string of thought, we could apply this concept to all human knowledge and creations, as the Romantics essentially did. To sum up, Making anything, from a commodity to a law to a poem, requires us to first dip our thoughts into that same ethereal place in our minds where all creations begin. And that place, because it allows us to make decisions, objects, arguments, and poetry, it thereby bestows us with an agency or control over our destinies. Therefore, Neruda's poetry indeed comes from the same place as those objects he chooses to hold in his hand and ruminate upon in the flea market. I brought this point up simply so you could keep this in mind when reading or listening to his poetry. Now let's listen to one of his poems under the light of his introduction. I'm about to read the 36th sonnet from his second book of Cieno Sonetos de Amor, titled Mediodia. 
In this poem, you'll hear many domestic references regarding his wife, Matilda. The lines clearly express an homage to Matilda's work in the garden as both its keeper and its sovereign. And finally, he equates the way in which she first imagined her garden, then planted it, and he takes this method and compares it to his writing process, which begins with the idea or inspiration, then leads to intention or germination, and finally the cultivation of the ripened harvest. Here's a sample of Neruda's harvest, Sonnet 36 from Mediodia. My heart, keeper of the harvest, of the trough, small panther of the thread and the pungent bulb, your brilliant empire shimmers and I am pleased with the waxen weapons, the wine, the oils. The buried bulb pulled from the earth with your open hand, from the aqua substance kindled in your palms, from the metamorphosis of the dream to the substance, from the reptile coiled within the hose. You with pruned branches carry the nomadic aroma. You direct the course of the soap and the foam. You lift my surreptitious scales. You bury the seeds of my calligraphy and discover beneath the sands of my notebook the raised letters searching for your lips. What I like especially from this poem is how he credits her work for his inspiration. That is, through her gardening, she not only plants her vegetable garden, but also the seeds of his poem. I'm sure you notice the sensuality of Sonnet 36, which brings up an interesting aspect of domestic life that Neruda articulates so well in this piece. It's intimacy. And lastly, he articulates this intimacy of domestic life through the intimacy of poetic language. Let's take a look at the sonnet that follows 36. In Sonnet 37, Neruda seems to acknowledge Matilda as his son, his warmth, his source of energy and life. I'd like to first say that I took some liberty translating this piece. For example, instead of translating the Spanish word naturaleza to its English equivalent, nature, I instead decided to use Demeter, the Greek goddess of the harvest and of prosperity. I thought this slight variation was appropriate, but I also thought you should know that although I often use Greek gods to replace certain nouns in the sonnets, Neruda never mentions a Greek god by name. He does, however, often refer to marble sculptures and even directly to Homer in 38, as you'll hear. Essentially, I wanted to avoid the obscure word nature and add some substance to the line. Anyway, I remain consistent in my substitutions throughout the translations, and I'd like to think that he would have approved. Anyway, without any further ado, let's hear Sonnet 37. <clears throat> o love, O crazy ray and violet threat, You encounter me and lift me through your latest staircase To the towers that time crowned with supple clouds The pallid walls of your enclosed heart. No one will know that it was only the gentleness Laying enduring glaciers like urban avenues and the blood somehow opening delicate tunnels, its rain never consuming the winter glass. Therefore, love, your lips, your foot, your light, your scars, and especially your scars, they are the lineage of life, the sacred gifts passed down from the clouds from Demeter, who raises and receives her offspring toward the sun, the secret tempest of wine bottled and corked, the harvest sounding from beneath the soil. 
Clearly, you can hear how seamlessly the two sonnets work together. Many references from 36 were repeated in Sonnet 37. Only Matilda has become more than the planter of the seeds. She is now also their caretaker, inspired and blessed by Demeter, or by nature, as Neruda states in the original. Now I'd like to read one last poem to you, Sonnet 38. It appears that in this sonnet, Matilda is not at home. However, Neruda waits until the last line to inform his reader that she has left. This seems similar to the tr traditional turn of a sonnet. The turn of a sonnet, obvious if you read almost any Shakespearean sonnet, usually occurs within the ninth line. The turn is termed such because usually at this point some type of reversal takes place. This reversal could be a change in tone, mood, or if the sonnet expresses some viewpoint by the speaker, he may completely change his mind during this point. In Neruda's Sonnet 38, the reversal begins in line 9 as a change in tone, from an active and musical introduction to an expression of absence. At this point, you'll hear a negation placed in front of each verb, whereas prior to the turn, each verb was a present tense active verb. Then in the final line, we are told that Matilda has actually left the house. In the light of the second half of the, the first half of the poem changes from present description to a nostalgic memory. So let's listen to Sonnet 38 by Pablo Neruda. Your home resonates like a rolling train, like the buzzing of wasps, the singing of dishes, the cascade in the kitchen tallies the fleeting dew. Your laughter develops its sultry trill. The blue light of the wall converses with stone. It arrives like a whistling missionary, a letter, and it enters both big trees of verdant tongue. It climbs with stealthy steps and Homeric intentions. Only here has the city no voice, no tongue, no limit, no song, no lips, nor horns, but rather a discourse of cataracts and lions. You who rises, sings, runs, travels, descends, plants, sows, cooks, washes, writes, returns. You have left, and the earth hushes in your absence. I love this sonnet as well as the other two I read today. I hope you enjoyed them as much as I did, but it's time to wrap up the show now. Please stay subscribed to PoetryCast because this helps the ratings and therefore helps me to gain a greater audience. And if you'd like to email me about anything pertaining to the show, you can reach me at PoetryCast at Yahoo.com. Thanks for joining me today, and until next time, hasta luego.